everyone, welcome to episode 317 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. On today's episode, I sat down with the legendary Australian printmaker and fine art educator, Les Walkling. Dr. Walkling has devoted his life to the arts and taught contemporary fine art photography and history at RMIT University for many years. He is perhaps more well known in the landscape photography community for his excellent YouTube videos that compare and contrast various fine art papers for printing. On today's podcast, we talk about his research, how to evaluate and choose fine art paper, and tips for monitor calibration. Before we start, I want to thank all of our supporters on Patreon. You are responsible for keeping the podcast alive and provide me with ample motivation to continue this project. If you too value the podcast, you can support us financially on Patreon. Since we operate on the value for value model, I think if you get any value from listening, you should pay for that value. I think anything more than zero is fair. Thanks in advance for your support. Head to patreon.com forward slash f-stop and listen to help us out. If you're not in a place to financially support the show, you can always help us by leaving a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much. Okay, let's get to this week's episode with Les Walkling. All right, Les Walkling, it's great to have you on the podcast. Uh, my pleasure. Lovely to meet you, Matt. You as well. I've, your name has come up in conversation numerous times, and I spent a lot of time digging into your website and learning a little bit more about you. And the more I read, the more excited I got to have you on the show. So I'm super happy to have, have this podcast. My pleasure. I, I hope I can, can be of some interest and help. Oh, absolutely. I know for sure that people are going to be talking about this one for a while. So. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. So, so for people that aren't familiar with you and your photography, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, certainly. I, I live in Melbourne, Australia, on Wurundjeri land of the Kulin Nation here. Uh, you know, I pay my respects to elders past and present and all First Nations people. It's a very old continent where I live and uh, where I was born and I've grown up and uh, you know, we have an enormous range of political, historical, colonial uh, concerns and interests here that uh, occupy a lot of my time. Uh, my life has been divided uh, pretty much simultaneously between being an artist in the world of contemporary art, uh, uh, an educator at, uh, at uh, university art schools, and as a consultant. I spend a lot of time, two days a week in fact, uh, forever, really, you know, helping other people in this field. Um, and out of that has grown a whole range of uh, interests and preoccupations. I've, I've also, in, in specifically to do with um, landscape as a genre of, of contemporary art or landscape photography, about 12 years ago I became part of a little collective which you call ND5, which is very much focused on a sense of belonging and, and presence in country and habitation and colonisation and whatnot in our country. Uh, other people that you know, Christian Fletcher, for example, got me involved in this. I know you've had Christian on, on your podcast uh, previously. Yeah. Um, and he's 
become a very, very dear friend. So, yeah, I have, you know, even though I, you know, I'm not a landscape photographer as such, I, I you know, I have been involved in, in, in uh, incursions into, into land, country, place, belonging, you know, sense of being, uh, the ontology of, of grounding and so on. I've been involved in such things, especially through our little collective. But also these are huge topics in a colonised uh, settler culture as I live in here in, um, in Australia. These are huge, huge concerns and uh, cultural, social, uh, philosophical, you know, historical concerns. And a lot of my collaborative practice in the world of contemporary art uh, is with others who work in such spaces. So I'm, I don't know if that's enough of an introduction. I mean, I, sh I probably should also mention, I, uh, you, you know, I took early retirement from the university sector about 10 years ago. I still teach into the postgraduate and you know, still audit programs and supervise at postgraduate level and so on. Um, but I formally removed myself from that uh, as an administrator running an art school from that system uh, so I could really focus without the bureaucratic overloads on... on the research and the things that I've... I mean, look, as an artist, you can do this stuff, but you always have use-by dates. And, and also I should mention that, you know, at that time, uh, you know, 2010 really was when I finished my last major research project at, at, um, at RMIT University here in Melbourne and, and, and then took early retirement. At that time, my son, uh, Andre, uh, who now teaches in my old art school at RMIT, um, we... we formalised and brought all of our doings and uh, wanderings together and that's uh, when we formalised Les Walkley & Co uh, an incorporated company uh, which is an umbrella looking after all manner of things, education, consulting yeah, all exhibiting uh, counselling and so on and uh, so my son and I now work together on a, on a daily basis uh, Oh that must, be, that must be really great Yeah well his, his area of his areas of expertise include 3D imaging and, and uh, virtualizations and so forth. So he's been okay. doing a lot of consulting recently outside of his own art practice with, um, you know, our National Gallery of Australia, uh, the Australian Institute of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander studies uh, up in Canberra, the capital of our country. Uh, he's been doing a lot of work with them, helping them digitise their, uh, their objects and their co uh, cultural collections and so forth. Uh, amongst other things, but he teaches um, into the school of art. He teaches into the area of contemporary art and fine art photography and so forth at university. So, yeah, no, we we have a lot of fun fun together. Uh, so I should should Brilliant. mention that as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I know we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the nitty gritties of printing and <laughs> color gamuts and all kinds of really technical things, but. Before we did that, I, I really think our listeners would be interested to, to learn more about your research in fine art, and I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about kind of what that encompasses. Okay. Um, well, like all of my friends, you know, I've always been interested in a lot of things. So part of the task is how you load balance those interests. Over the years, I could broadly categorise the things that interest me into roughly four, yeah, roughly four categories, I guess. Um, the enduring one is the practice of light, uh, which is photographic history and outcomes, um, and and how the development of 
photographic imaging has contributed to, you know, to a political aesthetics uh, of uh, representation. Uh, remember now with our extraordinary neural networks, um, we're now in a third photography, you know, computational photography. So we've, uh, right. and, and I've been yeah. lucky enough to live through that, that moment from analogue to our digital and now computational photography. So practice of light is a huge concern. I mean, my, my last uh, Australia Research Council-funded research project was uh, genealogies of digital light, which is really just looking and trying to aggregate a lot of those anecdotal stories and inferences and observations from the founders of, of digital process, you know, Alvy Ray Smith and on and on, trying to aggregate these things um, so they're not lost in the, in the eons of time and we, we don't have those uh, dinner party conversations that Fox Talbot had in you know, 1839. So, so I've always been really interested in the practice of light and it's what got me into photography as a discipline uh, in the first place. But there's also you know, cultural theory and practice, specifically decoloniality, um, you know, how, how can we repurpose our collections and systems of classification uh, and erase the blindness that they impose on our understanding uh, of the hierarchies and the dominations of settler culture? That's a huge uh, collaborative uh, area of research. Um, and, of course, the artist as scholar. Uh, you know, I've supervised so many PhDs in my life. It's um, practice-led research tools, how you actually do this, how, uh, how is new knowledge produced through artistic inquiry where understanding demonstrated through the manipulation of materials is reflected upon and manifested. I mean, th th these are things that keep me up at night, just trying to understand the nature of what we know and do and come to be in the world of art. And then as on a, just a very personal level, I guess, um, the enduring fascination of the place of beauty in contemporary art. And, and can the pursuit of beauty be better understood in the sense that life might be better when beauty is a part of it rather than its dismissal and denigration in so much contemporary art criticism be, be, mm. because it's just so problematic and filled with the potential of superficial distraction and, or, or worse. So that's a preoccupation. I'm not a philosopher, but, uh, but that's a preoccupation of mine and my friends in philosophy uh, do spend a lot of time thinking about such things. So I, I tag along. So yeah, there are those for you. But really, <laughs> I guess all of that coalesces into this practice of light idea, you know, the, the histories and methodologies and, and um, you, you know, in my interest in the, um, uh, in the history of materials and interfaces and practices in, in, in photography as a cultural phenomena and, of course, landscape as a genre within all of that and especially with our relationships to land, place, belonging, you know, these, these contemporary political concerns and not just aesthetic concerns is really important to me. But I'm not sure if any of that is of any interest to anyone else apart from my, my mates that I, <laughs> I hang out with. But, but that, but, sure, sure, but sure. I don't know if that helps. But It does. Yeah, I mean, the, the last one particularly is interesting, especially for a lot of landscape photographers, because I feel like in 
landscape and nature photography, there's kind of this general, oh, I don't know, this feeling amongst photographers that we're kind of looked down upon in the art world and, you know, because mostly what we're capturing is moments of beauty and, and you know, in the art world, it seems like there's this kind of litmus test that things need to be about something more interesting than beauty and, you know, it has to be about, you know, special interest issues or things like that. And, and I kind of, you know, I, I have a lot of go back and forth conversations with other photographers about this because yeah. I, I, on some level I do kind of see the point. Like, yeah, beauty is exciting, interesting and, you know, we need beauty in our lives. And, you know, obviously I love making prints and putting them on the walls and things like that. But sometimes it does feel a little, I don't know, lacking in purpose. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I know what you're saying. Beauties and soft topics like beauty. I mean, we're not talking epistemology here. We're not talking philosophy of mind here. We're not talking the hard right. topics of our culture, the soft ones, the ones where the evidence and verification is you know, really slippery slopes. But one of the real problems in, in my lifetime in the world of contemporary art is is the superficial distraction that beauty can impose, you know, on an otherwise um, exemplary e exposition. You know, if you're wanting to talk about things on our side of the lens, and I, this is, I think, a, an important distinction. You know, we draw the world... As a photographer, you draw the world primarily with a lens. Now, yeah, I know... One of the latest videos I've just posted on our YouTube channel called Brushwork is kind of contradicts that. But, but in the first instance, you know, I, I fell in love sure. with optics and, and sensitised surfaces. This is, and then I realised you know, that, that emulsions, photographic emulsions, were so honest and in their revealing of another thing. And I discovered I needed glasses because I <laughs> was having trouble reading the, the writing on the chalkboards from the back of the lecture theatres. And... It just dawned on me, uh, you know, oh, wow, that's photography. And the politics of the time, Vietnam War and everything else kind of conspired to, to, to force this. But, you know, this, this idea that when, as a photographer, primarily we hand over the drawing of the image uh, to the democracy of the lens. And a lot of us, you know, love lenses that are more democratic, you know, contrast, transfer, equality from corner to corner, yeah, just amazing optical properties that, that some of these extraordinary, like my digerons, you know, just extraordinary optics, uh, almost beyond belief. But there's two sides, isn't there? There's the referent, you know, the thing that was in front of the camera. And a, a lot of people I've met over the years in my workshops and, you know, elsewhere, that's what got them into photography, putting a frame around something that grabbed their attention and they then, for whatever reason, brought that home and, and, and then begun, began to do something else with it. I mean, a gorgeous, a gorgeous undertaking. Um, but then there's the duality theory of photography that simultaneously as that shutter is released, we're also capturing an image on our side of the lens. Uh, uh, images of things that can't be seen. You know, thoughts, feelings, uh, things in, in, our, in, in us. And which side of the lens we find ourselves spending the most time on tends to define us as, as to the genres and interest in photography that possess us. So 
you know, the natural, uh, the natural connection with a world outside of us, you know, with, with time and spatial and, and, and agency is so alluring and so compelling. We don't live in broom closets. And the, then to honour that by photographing it, especially things that we trip across and discover as being remarkable and of interest for all sorts of reasons. Even an ideal like, oh my gosh, oh my goodness gracious me, you know, aesthetic judgments, aesthetic revelations. Oh, look, oh, can you believe? Look at the light and, and so on. And the more, fo- more of a photographer you become, the more you can read uh, the world in such uh, in, informed ways. It's like any area of expertise, I guess. But so I know what you're saying, and I, I, I get this a great deal. I mean, once a year I do this huge photo retreat uh, way up in the north of Australia, way up in the, in the Daintree rainforest, you know, this Gondwana land, the beginning of time, a, a, a massive amount of Australia's biodiversity. It's also where apparently, you know, two, the only place on our planet that two World Heritage listed sites, the Great Barrier Reef uh, and, and the Daintree Rainforest, where they meet at Cowie Bay, you know, you can walk out at low tide to the edge of the Great Barrier Reef. That's, it, that's amazing. Unbelievable. Unbelievably yeah. difficult to photograph, of course, from a, from a European perspective. But we, and you know, a lot of the people who attend that, you know, it's like a 10 day extravaganza. Uh, the, the, a lot of the people who, it's not a photo tour. You know, we have classrooms, we work, you know, we, we go out and investigate the environment around us. But, you know, it's all, it's like university art school, basically, for people who haven't been to art school in a long time. A lot of people who turn up there say the same thing. They've reached a crescendo in their practice be it landscape or whatever, whatever genre of photography uh, they love and adore, they've reached a crescendo. And I've, even a couple of weeks ago, Matt, I, I had within a space of about 10 days, four friends contact me, all with similar questions. In, in, in those cases, it's often a lack of confidence in what they're doing. Mm. And that often translates or parallels with a lack of embeddedness of their practice. Now, you know, there's you know, photography, like any technologically mediated art form, is intensely, I don't need to tell you, is intensely complicated at best. And the deluge of amazing technology just doesn't stop. I mean, isn't this just what a world that we live in, um, despite its madness? And so, of course, there gets a point, though, for a lot of people where, you know, they're, they're looking at their work on the finest monitor money can buy and have calibrated and profiled it to within, a, to within a pufteenth of perfection according to whatever their criteria is. And they've got the most beautiful lenses that they've lusted after for years. And, you know, they've, they've, they've got to a point of accomplishment in terms of hardware and software, you know, methodology. And often they've already been able to travel to the most extraordinary spectacles in the world, whether they're cultural or, or wild places or what have you. 
and they've captured extra. I mean, look at the pictures behind you, for goodness sake. I mean, you know, right. amazing images, amazing moments, right, captured out of the flux of time and, and then we do something else with it. And that's the issue for a lot of people I meet. Uh, and my four friends a couple of weeks ago in our photo retreats, I've written a lot about this and a lot of this comes up in our workshops as well. In fact, <laughs> um, you can find this on our website under, um, uh, uh, under, uh, under About and Notes uh, in, in my essay section, The Joy and Despair of Becoming a Photographer, where I, I, <laughs> I address these questions that my friends often bring me and talk about this in ways. And, and my answer to this is about the, you know, then you begin to embed what you do in larger concerns, in, in, in a discourse where there are more than your own voice. You still do it out of self-interest. I mean, no research is undertaken without you being interested in it. Otherwise, oh my goodness gracious me, it's purgatory. But that mechanism, so, but that's on our side of the lens, you see. So though we might begin obsessed uh, with these spectacular moments of spectacles, let's just say so much landscape photography I see, especially commercialised landscape photography, uh, which you know, people sell online and in beautiful galleries. So much of that, in the first instance, no, no matter what is going on on their side of the lens, is really about that spectacle. And therefore, the way it's contextualised, presented, engaged with, is about that spe spectacle. I mean, just look at the, look at the panoramic ratios of, uh, historically of so much commercial landscape photography. You know, and a lot of the perceptual psychology, especially in the 20th century, although people in my culture, Leonardo was writing about this 550 years ago. I'm sure there are dudes in ancient China writing about this 5,000 years ago. But, but you know, as the, as the aspect, this is my emotional theory of aspect ratios, for example, as the aspect ratio of our frames become more panoramic. And the crossover point's tricky, but it seems to be around that 8 by 10 you know, four is to five ratio, you know, that 20, 80% ratio where this jumps. And the more pano an image becomes, like look at the extraordinary six by 17 film cameras that were even manufactured for this. The more we look at this picture, even on a monitor, and it seems more often than not to function as a portal, a window that takes us somewhere else, transports us. So, now, my friend like Christian Fletcher, for example, he found that his panoramic 617 pictures of extraordinary Australian landscapes just sold like hotcakes. And, and so <laughs> many people who bought them, you know, just for personal use, not, not only for public collections, but for personal enjoyment, it was like they're walking down that beach again. You, you know, they, they, so, but as the image comes back into that 810, you know, the whole history of modernist photography is so much based around that 8 by 10 uh, 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 proportions, to the square format, height equals width, the more the image as an object begins to function as if it's an object, as if it's a sculpture rather than a window, and therefore it's huh. acts more like a mirror. So 
it's easier then for our thoughts, feelings, ideas, things that can't be seen on our side of the lens to be attached, to be evoked. So just really simple things like my emotional theory of aspect ratios has dramatic impact. Now, look, I'll never forget when I first met, uh, you know, Christian Fletcher, when I was giving a public lecture and he came up and said hi and he invited me over to Western Australia. It's 2,500 miles away. Twenty-one. <laughs> yeah, he'd be about 25... Uh, I've got to translate kilometres into miles. That'd be 2,500 miles away from me. So I went over there eventually and had a... And I did a little workshop, a three- or four-day workshop with him and a couple of friends in a home cinema. And I'll never forget the moment when I was demonstrating, you know, my emotional theory of aspect ratios from the, the panoramic to the square. And he just fell off his seat because he, as an incredibly successful professional commercial photographer, supporting three families with multiple galleries and, you know, just lauded and loved by so, so many, he just felt that the real reasons underlying why he was doing this, above and beyond putting food and shelter, you know, on the table, people just weren't hearing or seeing or feeling it. But then, of course, he had the problem, Matt, because everything went square and they didn't walk <laughs> out the door as they previously had because they're no longer windows onto another place. So he then learned right. to support and embed these images in contexts larger than what was just in front of the lens, you know, the spectacular spectacle. He then learned to talk about a proposition, collaborate, yeah, you understand this well, my friend, collaborate and associate what he's done what he adores and loves and considers important in larger contexts. I feel like we could do like 70 podcast episodes just talking <laughs> oh, to you. I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> sorry. But, but look, I, I went on and on because I, this comes to me all the time. And, and, uh, and I feel, you know, it's, I, I don't know if I can help, but I feel it's important, you know, to try. Yeah, to try and share some other maybe ways of understanding or observing or thinking about what you do that, that, that I've learnt you know, through running an art school for all this time and, and holding all sorts of incredible people's hands as they go through these journeys um, for what it's worth. Anyway, it's offered in the... In the no, I, I, <laughs> I had never, never thought about aspect ratios in that way, but the way you described it makes perfect sense. Well, also print size, my emotional theory of print size and so on and so on. I mean, all, all of this stuff's on those websites. You can, you can access this. Oh, I can't wait to dig in. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, so let's, uh, let's, let's get to the heart of what I wanted <laughs> to talk to you about today, which is printing. Um, I first came to learn about you uh, from one of our listeners, Caleb Allen. He recommended you for the show based on uh, your extensive reviews on YouTube about different fine art papers. And, um, you know, fine art paper selection is something that I hear a lot of photographers stress out about. And honestly, I think, you know, most of us are fairly clueless when it comes to like how to pick paper. Um, so to kick us off, I'd love for you if you could tell us a little bit about the general properties that different papers have and what we should know about them, you know, including stuff like thickness and texture yeah. and shades of light and things like that. Okay. 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 The way I approach such a question, let's say in our digital printing workshops or our crafting a digital print workshop, we've got a couple of ones that tackle this. 
I, I often begin saying what we need first is a shared language, you know, a nomenclature that we can agree upon. Uh, you don't need any more evidence than Googling fine art inkjet printing papers to be swamped <laughs> with zillions right. of contradictory options. So, right, that's why people get are so overwhelmed because there's so much information out there and a lot of it doesn't line up to everyone's experience. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but, but this is what happens, well, not just in unregulated industries, but the world of art is, for all the right reasons, is an unregulated industry. I, you, you, you know, sure. anyone can, can participate, which is part of its, you know, the democratic process of, of culture. But, and I pair that observation with a really old reckoning of mine, the day I woke up and I just said, you know, the things I'm interested in photography, I can sort of categorise them or break them down into fives. For example, what are the five and only five things that affect our raw capture, that binary data? You know, where the critical plane of focus is, uh, uh, composition, place and occupier, and, of course, exposure, uh, uh, shutter speed movement and, and illusion of depth of field f uh, uh, apertures, and, and, you know, image quality, such as signal-to-noise ratios and so on. I mean, even the co- there's no colour gamut even at that point. You know, the binary data has to be converted into RGB data to even be able to map it into uh, colour meaning. Famous fives, uh, the five things that we do to that binary data when we first process it into RGB data, you know, into the Lightrooms and Capture Ones of this world. Uh, does my image need to be lighter or darker, harder or softer, warmer or cooler, more colourful or less colourful, sharper or duller? Of course, photography added another one to the endless you know, millennia-old famous five questions as to what I can do to an image, lighter, darker, warmer, harder, and so on and so on. Uh, does my image need to be bigger or smaller? And, and my son Andre would, would now add a seventh question to the old age-old famous fives. Uh, how real does my image need to be? But he lives in the world of virtuality. So, printmaking. Uh, printmaking. Yeah, well, that, 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 that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, yeah but he, 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 he would add a seventh <laughs> question. So what are the famous fives, as I like to call them, uh, in printmaking? Well, to me, there are five domains of expertise that are are required. There's obviously file preparation. Uh, There's materiality, which you're talking about, that the substance itself that we print on. Then there's the management of colour and digital imaging workflows. There's ink control, how this ink comes out of printers and so forth. And then the subjective one, they're all quite objective in terms of, you know, they're hard problems, hard things that you can categorise and, and verify and so forth. Aesthetic judgments is number five. Now, materiality is one of those five. Yep. And yeah. that's what we're talking about. So, again, there's another famous five. This is the shared nomenclature, the shared language descriptors, if you like. So, one of the most dominant ones is the colour of the media. Is it warm tone, cold tone, neutral tone? What the hell is that? Then there's the surface. (laughs) Is it textured or is it smooth or is it ultra smooth? Uh, Then there's the finish. You know, is it matte or semi-gloss or gloss or high gloss? The base. Is it solid like aluminium or wood or is it woven like, like silk or canvas? Is it 
Is it fibre-based? Is it rag-based? As in the alpha cellulose comes from plants like cotton or, or bamboo. Um, is it resin-coated in the sense that it's a, it's a waterproof, cheapest chips, tough as nails substrate? And then last but not least, of course, is the ink set that, um, that we put on that media. Is it specialised black and white inks? Is it small gamut? Is it wide gamut? And so on. Colour, surface, finish, base and ink set. This is the materiality and those famous fives. Okay. Now, and, and again, I've got this stuff on our website. You know, classifications of a lot of Canson papers or Ilford papers and so on where you can then uh, investigate and analyse and place those papers into, into categories. For example, traditionally, most of our fine art, what I call fine art inkjet papers, art papers, matte surfaced, you know, rag-based, beautiful uh, papers, mould-made papers with thick bulk and texture, with the cotton fibres running every other which way, imposing incredible strength, right. but also enabling the ink receptor coating and the image it carries to be embedded in depth rather than purely on the surface, as Fredrinier papers like you know, Rag Photographique from Canson, for example. You know, all sorts of incredible optical and otherworldly properties. So uh, that, that, that takes place. So traditional art papers, as I like to call them, were warmish tone papers. Don't forget D50, the graphic uh, daylight standard in, in photography and printing and so forth. Noonday sunshine basically is, 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 is quite warm to our sensibility. The warm rays of sunshine penetrating the coldness of an overcast day, or at least here in Melbourne. And, 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 and so then we had what I call just photographic type papers, you know, our barometer type surfaces. Traditionally, barium sulfate is a very slightly fluorescing product, so under the agency of ultraviolet radiation in the, in the viewing light, it slightly cools down that, that natural warmth of alpha cellulose uh, to be more like a D65, perhaps, uh, rendering, which our brains seem to, in a whole range of circumstances, find to be cooler uh, or to be more neutral, perhaps. And then, of course, our cheapest chips, toughest nails, commercial papers, as I call them, uh, mainly resin-coated, uh, 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 gloss, semi-gloss type papers, uh, Ilford Smooth Pearl, you know, extraordinarily beautiful uh, commercial papers like that. So we've got these major categories. But, I mean, that doesn't really help us choose, does it? It's just naming things and listing things. Right. So we have to start attaching those observations, warmer, cooler, neutral, textured, you know, smooth, ultra-smooth, mould-made, bulk and, you know, aesthetic judgments. We've got to start attaching to those things on our side of, things on our side of the lens, you know, thoughts, feelings, association. So, for example, okay, you, you can't see this, Matt. I mean, I, I can, uh, uh, no, you, we, we don't have a wide enough shot to see, but, you know, I've got walls of glass here in, in the front of our studio, um, up high on a hill, and I'm looking out into what we call the Yarra Valley here in, 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 uh, in Wurundjeri land. And I can see the mountains. It's a very hazy day today, but I can see the mountain ranges disappearing into the horizon. And, and the same eucalypt trees right outside my studio, even just down the valley, across the river and up the other side, already 
there is an increase in lightness, there is a, a loss of warm hues, uh, uh, the image is becoming less saturated. So we have spatial relations embedded in our observation of the physical material properties of how media represents. Now, I've got to stop for just one second and add another incursion. And okay. that is, so we're hanging on to materiality, warmer, cooler, lighter, darker, and so on. We're, we're hanging on to this sense of the image as an object, as a print, as something external to us that can inhabit time and space and almost has agency of itself in terms of, oh, it pokes me in the eye and it dares me to walk by in my indifference on my lounge room wall. Now, time and space. As a youngster, very new to the world of contemporary art, I would spend an inordinate amount of time in libraries and museums and you know, art galleries every day just looking at another extraordinary work of art, both modern and ancient, and going, how on earth do you do this? Let alone, how do you do it so it makes me feel this way? I would look at my images and start crying. But, you know, being the sort of person interested in such questions, I would get up the next day and have another go and another go. You know, one of the first things that, I, that really dawned on me with this sort of historical uh, research. And, and it was actually looking at frescoes on church walls, ancient church walls. Now, I, I'm not a religious person. I wasn't born into any sort of you know, religious understanding. But standing in, these, uh, in, in, in those days, there were Christian cathedrals. And I was going, yeah, you know, like these parables, these narratives, how are they, oh my God, you know what? That's a flat, just like a photographic print or my screen, that is a flat two-dimensional thing. And yet I'm experiencing time and space, you know, the everyday common sense of how we inhabit the world, you know, with my two eyes, touch wood, thankfully, still got two eyes, my stereoscopic and the sense of temporality, you know, the, the passing of, movement through, uh, what I call the spatial and temporal compositions and, and the agency that, that is involved. And I just realised that these images were capturing my attention. I, I say, how do you capture hearts and minds in your picture independently of what it is a picture of? How do you capture hearts and minds independently of what is a picture of? And I realised this is the oldest trick in the book, at least in my culture. Although I, you know, I have seen uh, uranium fluorescence dated rock art in the Western Kimberley, you know, three and a half thousand miles from me, dated twenty eight thousand three hundred years old, where whoever the wow. dudes were who painted this rock art, they understood this stuff as well, right? <laughs> you know, it just unbelievable. So it seems it's just part of our DNA, it's a part of our, our, our genesis. Now, so to create the illusion of the missing third dimension, of the missing sense of temporality, is the oldest trick in the book of how to capture hearts and minds independently of 
what it is a picture of. Like I look at these ancient frescoes and I don't understand the the ideology, I don't understand the stories, but boy, do they ever suck me in and want me to be engaged and to participate through these other things. Okay, warm tone papers, just like looking out here over the escarpment, out over the valley to the mountain ranges, warm colours come towards me, cool colours recede. Wow, warm toned papers, cool toned papers. Now, I, 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 um, if I was in the middle of my crafting a digital print workshop, for example, I'd turn on my overhead 4K camera and I'd slap down two pictures. Um, one of my favourites is a, is a beautiful portrait from my youth uh, of my dear friend Betsy Rowlands, an extraordinary painter. I, I met her when I was living in America, in, in your country, all those years ago. Um, a, a beautiful portrait that still just stands in for so much experience and understanding and joy at that time in my life. And printed on a cheapest chips, toughest nails, cold tone, blue, you know, uh, resin coated commercial paper and uh, a beautiful warm tone, but also slightly gloss like platine fiber rag from Canson, slightly warm tone, uh, uh, photographic type paper. And on the warmish tone paper, Oh, my God, Betsy's three-dimensional. Oh, that is the Betsy I, I remember and I adored all, all the time, all the way back then. And on the cold-toned paper, you know, she's withered and she, she, it's not the Betsy I remember. And, you know, at, at um, one of our uh, photo retreats, I mean, 20 years ago, whatever it was, I can remember uh, passing two images around the, the auditorium where everyone was assembled. And they got their rulers out and they were measuring the width of Betsy's face on these two prints. They were convinced that I'd pulled a, a sleight of hand on them and I'd somehow shrunk <laughs> Betsy down and they couldn't believe it. So the mm. difference between printing a landscape on a warm tone versus a cold tone paper and the sense of urgency and manifestation is extraordinary. You know, I, I can remember a workshop I did. Uh, I was doing one of our many printing workshops that we did with them in the years gone by. And there was a chap there in the front row. And everyone's sitting there with their ASO screens and their Epson A2 printers and, you know, all the cans and paper they can print with, you know, just to go nuts and make all of their sample prints. And this chap had just come back from a, an expedition to Antarctica. So, you know, he had these extraordinary pictures of, of, of you know, icebergs and things. And I'd been raving about Canson Platine Fibre Rag because, you know, I put so much of my heart and soul into the design and development of that paper for Canson Infinity, <laughs> along with uh, Rob Gatto at KL. It's a great, it's a great paper. It's what I... Oh, there you are. Well, thank you. Oh, you're most welcome. It, it's only three years <laughs> of my life on and off. But no, no, I mean, it was an absolute joy to be able to contribute to its development. But he straight away printed on Platine. And honestly, yes, the icebergs look three-dimensional, but they look dirty, stained. Mm. He printed on cheapest chips, tough as nails, almost, ultra, almost radioactive fluorescence, yeah, uh, photo luster from Canson Infinity. And, oh, yes, the iceberg shrunk, the ice shelf ran away from you, but it felt as if 
you're looking back to the beginnings of time. Unbelievable. Mm. Now, of course. Interesting. So, you know, surface texture, same thing. Smooth surfaces disappear. They impose no personality, in a sense, compared to textured surfaces. My goodness gracious me, as soon as we transition from a gloss surface, like a soft gloss like platine, or a higher gloss like a baryta paper, um, Canson baryta photographic uh, version 2, for example, now it's around 48, 90%, depending on how you measure the gloss level, compared to about 33, 35%, depending on how you measure the gloss level with platine, a much softer but even more dimensional paper. When you then try and transition that, for example, onto a matte surface, not these beautiful gloss surfaces, where the finish is now being questioned. Well, of course, the light reflecting off the matte surface, you know, remember what a matte surface does compared to a glossy surface. A matte surface scatters more light from the surface back in our direction. Uh, the glossier the surface, the more light penetrates the surface, is absorbed by the, the colour, the pigments, and before reflecting back. So the same ink load on a glossy paper compared to a matte paper, the blacks and the shadow separation immediately looks less so on the matte paper because of atmospheric perspective. We're looking at it through haze, right, scattered back. So, okay, I want, let's say, the smooth surface of a Canson Infinity rag photography or an Arsh 88. I, I want the uh, slightly cool or slightly warm tones of those papers, okay, for, for the spatial uh, evocations. But then I print it on a matte surface because, let's say, I'm going to exhibit it in a room with uncontrolled lighting, you know, broad, uncontrolled lighting. So with a matte surface with matte diffusion, I'm printing on that matte surface so I don't get all these crazy reflections of windows and people walking by. But then, of course, the image dies a thousand deaths in terms of dynamic range. So then I have to do more file preparation, one of our five categories of printmaking, to then enhance those, you know, the loss of saturation, the loss of DMAX and blah, blah, blah. But you see, I then have these securitous roots and they're all aimed one way or another, at least from my perspective, in terms of evoking things, phenomena, manifestations in a print that by definition can't be in that flat, still, immovable, two-dimensional surface, the sensation of the missing third dimension, the spatial dimension and the sense of narrative time uh, passing. So, uh, you know, I, it's, I, I, can, I never remember the day that I just held a hand up to one eye and just looked at the world through a single lens. This is even before I became interested in photography. And I went from this sensation of time and space to basically, you know, wallpaper where, where everything. And that's the, it's not just photography, all two-dimensional art does that. So I, how I edit images, how I prepare images, uh, the papers that I choose to print on, how I print on those papers, all of those domains of printmaking, ink control, colour management, the profiles I make for those different papers to extol all sorts of other values above and beyond industry or efficiency concerns. It's all about capturing how do you capture hearts and minds independently of what it is a picture of so that when what it is a picture of is of real interest to the observer, 
as well. It's a marriage made in heaven. And the material properties or qualities of our papers, you know, the colour, warmer, cooler, the texture, more textured, less textured, the finish, matte gloss, high gloss, and so on. These are how we also go about evoking locally and globally the sense of something else. Now, a couple of really key examples. Now, I'll, I'll just use one out of my... Um, I, I can't show you these, of course, over the, over the podcast, but uh, out of my digital printing workshop where I've got this, this picture of a, of a dis, uh, discarded drive-in way, way up the north of Western Australia where all of the mining takes place, digging up the iron ore, the oldest rocks you know, on the planet and so forth. Extraordinary industry in one of the most beautiful and wildest places uh, on the planet. Now, this old drive-in, you know, a picture drive-in where you, you know, drive in and watch the movies projected on the screen. This old, discarded, damaged, falling-to-bits screen. So it's this huge screen with no picture on it other than the picture of its own demise. And, of course, I begin printing on cheapest chips, tough as nails, commercial papers like Canson, Photo Luster, for example. Very, very cold tone, especially under the daylight illumination in the studio. And the print looks great, no problems at all. And then I print it on a Baraita paper. And, of course, whoa, suddenly it's three-dimensional. Then I print it on platine. And it's even more three-dimensional, the warm, subtle warm tones coming forth. My goodness gracious me, you want to get that ruler out again and measure the, the dimensions because you can't believe it's, a, it's an A3 plus print. It looks so much more prominent, the presence and the habitation of time and space. Then I print it on a smooth matte surface art paper and it dies a thousand, even with my stunningly beautiful uh, profiles, it dies a thousand deaths. So I've got to go back and then reconstitute what the matte surface has removed. But all in the, so I straight away I printed on a textured paper, like a, a watercolor paper, like um, like Creole rag, incredibly textured paper, right? Now the landscape just comes alive on the matte surface. The problem is this immaculate, peerless blue Pilbara sky, not a hint of pollution or clouds to be seen. It's just filled with UFOs, <laughs> you know, just shadows and highlights. <laughs> ah, you know, but then that gives me a real hint, right, the matte surface is destroying the local contrast because the blacks are not as black because of the scattered light creating this atmospheric haze over, the, over my seeing and I'm looking at this through this haze. Therefore, I need to create an illusion that the blacks are actually blacker than they are now, I'm doing that with a textured paper and raking light, which is imposing through its texture, you know, micro highlights and shadows all over my image, which makes the, the, the rocks, the sand, the, the, the foliage and so on just become three-dimensional, but the sky's a disaster. So it shifts the problem to how in my file preparation do I then apply that local contrast enhancement to my file before printing on the matte surface paper and so on. But it's all about then wanting... And then I go, well, you know... I need to then go back to a matte surface so I don't have those distracting impositions on my beautiful Pilbara blue sky. But I need to do something to enhance the presence in the landscape that is suffering on that paper 
while retaining the fact that I can then exhibit that paper with un without you know, museum controlled spotlighting in an uncontrolled environment, or I don't know where it's going, so it's on that matte surface so that I don't get distracting reflections or other compromises in my viewing engagement with that picture. And that's how I then navigate the torturous pathways of, of the options by breaking them down into just famous fives so I can go, well, and, and also it's a, it's a form of exploration, you know, going somewhere yeah. where you haven't been before. You know, if you're printing on platine, oh, God bless you, but, you know, if you're printing on beautiful platine, I know what that's doing to your pictures, right? And, and if you're using one of my profiles, I know how three-dimensional the bloody thing is becoming, right? And how easy it is to match screens and prints and all of that because of my profiles. But, of course, you then exhibit that in a studio like here, 180 degrees, I don't know what they are in yards, you know, 4.5 metre high, high walls of glass, although there's big fishbowl out the front of our studio here. And, of course, you know, no matter where I move... <laughs> I'm seeing windows reflecting, so I then straight away I've got a, you know, you can just see it, a chunk of infinity behind me, that big black square, that's a metre by, or 1.2 by 1.2 metres, uh, as one of Andre's um, chunks of infinity as he, as he uh, terms them, uh, this three-dimensional chunk of an ocean just floating in this black void of no... If that was on a highly glossy paper here, I wouldn't even be able to see any, any of it just through reflections. That on a matte surface right. paper. So horses for courses. And, you know, one of the things that, um, that my mob over there in France, uh, Canson uh, Infinity, one of the things that they've done recently, of course, is, um, well, they've given us Bariter photographic in a matte surface. So we have, I mean, we've had matte Bariter papers in analogue photography since, you know, the 1880s, but uh, this apparently appears to be, you know, the first one of the first, if not the first, matte surface Bariter paper uh, for inkjet printing. So I now have all of the dimensionality and the neutrality and the eloquence and, and uh, sense of spatial and temporality in my Bariter paper, and I can choose a matte surface for exhibiting in uncontrolled lighting or the beautiful uh, soft gloss surface when I'm in museum or more controlled lighting environments where angle of incidence, angle of reflection can be... So I don't know if that helps. I've certainly got, you know, discussions. You, you, you mentioned, you know, I've certainly got discussions about all this stuff in a little more depth, I guess, on our YouTube channel. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. I think the, um, the, the, the good thing and the bad thing is that either depending on the image and depending on the application of the installation of the piece... There's no such thing as the perfect paper. It de really depends on the qualities that you want to emphasize or to um, have in the final print. And therefore, it becomes really challenging for photographers to to say, like, oh, I'm only going to use one paper because, yeah, that paper might be great for 60% of your applications, but it might actually be worse for the other 40%. <laughs> what a great observation. But you've got to start somewhere. Right? right, And like that example from my digital printing workshop where I've got the same image and I've printed on a beautiful cold tone uh, commercial paper and then I've printed it on a variety type photographic paper and then I ended up printing it on a, on a beautiful art paper. You know, just three papers. And um, 
I've got a thing called paper classifications on my website uh, where, where I sort of rank in, uh, uh, you know, colour and surface and ink set and, um, and whatnot, going from our fine art papers to our cheapest chips, tough as nails, commercial papers with those photographic papers and so on, uh, more neutral-like in the middle. And, you know, you just throw a dart and just pick three papers and... Um, if you can't afford three papers, pick two papers. Pick, you know, platine and rag photographique, where the, the, the rag base is so similar, the, the white point is almost identical, and one has this extraordinary depth, presence and dimensionality platine, and the other has the soft, yielding compassion. Uh, I don't know a more empathetic paper in the world than, than, than rag photographique from Canson. And then you straight away learn so much about your image, don't you? I mean, I can remember when I was... I was, you know, I had the extraordinary privilege in my youth to spend time with people in your country, not just here, like Frederick Summer. You know, just, you know, mind-boggling artists of the highest, highest, highest order in, in my estimation. And, you know, and he taught me the importance of a poem that you loved, of reading translations of it in different languages, reading it in those other languages, and you learned so much through its translation into another cultural you know, uh, moment. And, and it's the same with printing on papers. So how not to become overwhelmed by the choices? And look, I, you know, you know we've, we've got to be you know, gentle about the, and kind about our observations. But, you know, how many, you know, websites and things have I come across where, you know, someone says, oh, this is the greatest paper I've ever printed on, blah. It's the same bloody paper that I've been printing on for the last three years. It's just rebadged and you know, outsourced and got a gold sticker on it and, you know, is advertised as something with, with a premium price tag. I mean, it's just tragic beyond belief. Now, that doesn't mean that they haven't discovered something meaningful in their own practice. But as you say, perfect is a, it's a conversation stopper. You know, it's not a conversation right. starter. And therefore, just printing and putting them up on a wall, you know, getting the image out of you back into the world from which it came, you know, the most generous act for me that photography bequeaths to the world is the returning the image to the world from which it came as an object in its own right. And, and, uh, and, and this is something not, not to be made slight of. And, and therefore, just having that conversation between yourself and your image on a matte surfaced art paper and a gloss surfaced photographic paper and giving yourself the time. And I think this is something in the haste of contemporary societies. I think this is, at least where I live, this is really important to give yourself the time, not just through long-term projects. I mean, long-term projects is, is a manifestation of this, but the time to think about and to think through the work itself as it appears, and, and to have the time to engage deeply with the work and, and therefore what you are doing, be it landscape or whatever genre. And then the interesting questions, the research questions begin to come up. Well, why does my image look this way on the matte paper? How can I get the qualities that I desire on the gloss paper without the gloss on the matte paper? And, and so you then have right. these really productive and interesting 
you know, research questions, which are you know, in our heads, they're not out there, that you can then think about and, and uh, investigate and experiment with, and so on and so on. So I, I think you know, this is... Um, you know, this is not about I'm how gonna... to live a good life. It's just how to not be overwhelmed <laughs> yeah, by the complexity of the technologically mediated medium we, we, we love and adore. I don't know. I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you a question I think might, might frustrate you or there might not be <laughs> a good that? answer for it. But, um, like, is there a paper in your estimation that, you know, is kind of like a jack-of-all-trades, master of none, that kind of works well in a lot of different situations, but isn't, you know, it's not the best in any given situation kind of a thing. Does that make sense? Yes. I, I, um, I, I, am pretty sure I understand what you're asking. Um, and, uh, well, okay. My prejudice is, you know, you begin with something in the middle of that range, neither very warm or very cool, a Baraita paper, you know, and maybe a modern Baraita paper like uh, Canson Baraita Photographic 2, simply because it's a unique Baraita paper that it's even more neutral in its, in its measured yeah, whiteness. It's even more neutral than traditional Baraita papers, which are slightly cooler. And therefore, it, and it doesn't have the chameleon-like problems of traditional brighter papers, where depending on the amount of ultraviolet radiation in the viewing environment, uh, it will change its white point, it will change its colour. So it's a really neutral, with a beautiful, smooth, semi-gloss type surface, with incredible depth, presence, incredible resolution. There's no texture in the paper surface to, to sort of a, a compromise the optical purity of our lenses and so on. If you just wanted a simple paper of the highest calibre, uh, I would just print on a Baraita paper to begin with, for example. But, you know, I go back, you know, uh, you know I grew up in a dark room, for goodness sake, you know, mixing chemi chemicals, for God's sake. So it's, sure, um, sure. <laughs> I, I'm very biased to that look of modernist photography, whereas yeah, Andre yeah. looks at that and he just laughs at me. You know, my son just laughs at me and goes, really? You know, but each to their own. But, I mean, you, you know, if, right. if, you want <laughs> if you want an answer and put a dart on the board... You know, put a pin in the map. I'd just print on a brighter paper. Look, I mean, I've got to fess up. You know, when I first began practicing photography, very, very, very long time ago, um, and just with a big old, you know, eight by ten inch camera, taking big, you know, sheets of film and so forth. I only had one lens, and I, I just bought a, a whole cache of the same film emulsion, a black and white film emulsion in those days. And I just spent years just working with that one lens, that one camera, you know, that one perspective, that one emulsion, just perfecting and that understanding. And then as soon as I could afford to buy a, a different emulsion, maybe a higher speed emulsion or something that dug deeper into the infrared spectrum or what have you, immediately with all of that experience and investigation and knowledge of that workflow that I stayed with for all that time, I immediately saw the differences and could evaluate them and value them yeah, accordingly. So I'll never forget, I bought a, 
um, a 300 millimeter rotogon enlarging lens, rodenstock rotogon enlarging lens, because I thought, you know, yeah, these contact prints are awesome, but gee, I just, you know, this is where I was developing my emotional theory of print size. I just want, I just want to, you know, I want to turn my camera into a projector and, and just blow these up a little bigger because my favorite papers were available up to rolls of 50 inch in those days. And, uh, and I remember looking, you know, you, you put one optic up to your eye so you can focus the aerial image of that other object. And just looking at the aerial image of this Rotogon lens compared to the old Schneider Simar lens on my camera, which was almost as old as I was, and go, oh, my God, look at the greens. I just spent days looking through this enlarging. <laughs> look at the resolution. Unbelievable. Then I had to work out how to fit to my bloody camera, you know, and with no shutter, blah, blah, blah. But that was a youthful excursion. And, you know, but it was because I'd been looking through this one lens for so long. You know, I, I, I was dreaming about pictures made to this lens. You know, no televisions glued to the back of our cameras in those days, giving us a moment-by-moment commentary on what we're doing. I, I could dream images into being. And so I immediately saw... So I just would start with just one beautiful paper. But, you know, these papers are not cheap as chips, tough as nails, commercial papers, right? You know, they're quite expensive papers, so oh, yeah. you it's don't like, waste them. I don't know, yeah. $100 for like 20 sheets or yeah, something? Yeah, yeah, but, uh, but, <laughs> but you get a great deal in return for that investment. You've just got to work out how not to waste them, the, the resources, you know, and... And so every time you do an experiment or something, you record it. Now, the marvellous thing about our software is, is even dear old Photoshop, you know, loves, if we use it in the right way, to archive what we've done, you know, on gorgeous adjustment layers and the instructions that were issued, I'm blending on here and I'm adjusting the, the output on here. You know, so in the old days of textbooks, half my library is things I've been writing and sketching in the analogue days. We've just got to be smart in, I think, annotating our discoveries and having that time to not just reflect on what we do, you know, those longer-term engagements, but to, you know, in an interesting way, fuel those interests that we have. You know, I, I took this picture for reasons I might not even be able to articulate at the moment when I was taking it. And I've done this to it in my post-processing for reasons at that time, you know, that agency of discovery, I might not be able to articulate. But then, going to that point where I then go, well, how can I make it even better? What else is possible? And it's through the accumulative annotation you know, collection of what we have done so that we, it doesn't slip out the back door and we then have to reinvent it later on. This, this is what research does. You know, we, we then accumulate observations and, and hopefully understandings that then turns into knowledge that can then reinfect the cycle all over again. But you keep hmm. it simple. Uh, look, I'll, I'll never forget the, the, the very first research methods class I ever taught. At, uh, at RMIT University all those years ago, you, you know, to our, our, um, our PhD cohort. Uh, I got uh, D. Professor Robin Williams along. Extraordinary, extraordinary man. And uh, I said, Robin, can you just come and talk about your PhD experience? You know, all those years ago in, in London. 
And he brought in these, I'll never forget this, these two, in the old days, our libraries, we had card indexes, that's how we discovered and moved through the the Dewey Decimal System in our beautiful libraries. And he brought in these two library catalogue drawers, big wooden drawers with all these, you know, these little postcard cards with all oh, yeah. you know, the stuff typed. I'm not... He brought them in. <laughs> and one was chockers with, I don't know, 500 cards and the other, I don't know, 200 cards. And he said, see this, see all these cards? These were all of the things that I became interested in during my PhD. But over here are the ones that I culled those interests down into to make a manageable, a manageable project that I could do in five years, you, you know, and, and, and then I could return to these other interests if they were still of interest at that time. And I just thought, thank you, Robin, how extraordinary, my friend, you know, as a simple visual metaphor. And this was in an art school where, you know, people are there with practice-led research uh, uh, programs, by and large. I just thought, how simple is that? So... You know, we, we gift ourselves so much understanding just through the experience of being there and doing that. If we try and formalise it rather than just saying perfect and stopping the conversation, if we then ask questions about what we're doing, you know, where we promote and reinforce the wonder and the wandering amongst those things that concern us, uh, which can be as simple as just testing a couple of different papers. <laughs> you know, I've had, right. I've had students <laughs> days gone by who have gone to, you know, when we had the huge trade shows, you know, the photokinas and so forth. We had them in Australia as well. And I've had students, you know, living so far below the poverty line, it wasn't funny, but going and getting sample, free sample packs from the paper manufacturers at the big trade shows and going back and getting another pack and another pack on another day and then printing their entire final folios on these sample packs. And, you know, I'm not... It's not possible these days, I guess, in a sense. But what I'm saying is through just being inventive, you know, we we can find ways of achieving comparative outcomes without them costing us a lot of money, yeah, and therefore wasted time funding such enterprise. You don't need to get a arts grant you know, to do this. But just it's a way of thinking and most importantly, going back to that duality theory of the two sides of the lens. Most importantly, you know, giving yourself the time, even if you're a natural history photographer, you know, a scientist, indexing the world in front of the lens. I was here, this was there, you know, this is the referent, this is what I want. My, my friends who you know, look after our biological collections, for example, obsessed with high-resolution imaging of insect species and like my mate Jeff Thompson up at the Queensland Museum, you know, a world leader in biological illustration through lenses and so forth. Extraordinary, extraordinary stuff. But Jeff, even though he's a hardcore scientist, yeah, obsessed with the taxonomy, the nomenclature of the description, the understanding of, of the, the, the insect in front of his lens, he couldn't think of anything on the planet that he would enjoy doing more than what he is doing in front of the lens on that moment. It's just that he doesn't publish what's going on on his side of the lens. He publishes his findings about what was in front of the lens. 
yeah? And yet when you talk to him, immediately he's talking about the joy and the revelation. Oh my God, look at this new optic that we've got. It can resolve, it can out-resolve an electron microscope and on and on it goes. All right, anyway, there's just a few little encouragements, I hope, that might, I don't know, might be of some use to someone uh, amongst your friends. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, but look, uh, yeah, there, there's sure. a massive amount of stuff on our website that... I talk about, you know, the papers and videos and things that address the most frequently asked questions that come our way in our, in our consultations, in our, in our uh, workshops and in our lecture theatres and, and so on. That is just there. And they're divided quite clearly between, you know, the, my history and about the about section of our website and the notes, which are essays and artist statements and public lectures and presentations that I've transcribed. For uh, example, you, you, you mentioned uh, when you were asking me about to do this podcast you, about the work I did on the Peter Dombrovskis archive and things like that. Well, I've got all my exhibition opening and, and other things that I've said about that. That's all on that website. But then okay. the support website, and these are just, you know, it's, it's phone-friendly website, uh, the support column, uh, there's notes and videos. Videos is just our YouTube channel. The notes are, again, broken into you know, printing and, and editing and calibrating notes, and there's test forms and all manner of things at all different levels of engagement. So there's heaps of stuff there for people to get amongst. Um, and, and the questions that we've been addressing today, there's heaps of stuff I've written discursively around such topics. And exactly about such topics over the years. Perfect. Um, so you, you know, please don't be strangers if, if um, it's of any interest. Yeah, we'll definitely, we'll definitely refer people to there. And this is one of the first times I've, like, we've almost run out of time and I have like 16 more questions, which we're not going to be able to get to. But um, I did want to ask you one more question sure. before the last question. Um, and it's it's something that's come up a few times in conversation I've had with other people who, who print their own work at home. And um, the question is around monitor calibration. So if what is ISO standard and how do we pick one for monitor calibration? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a really common question. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Okay. ISO, International Standards Organization, their standards are recommendations based on a lot of research by very good people. And it's like, Les, here's some recommendations of where to start. We have to go beyond ISO often for all sorts of desired outcomes. Now, when it comes to monitor calibration, there are basically two ISO standards, ISO 3664, which is about you know, viewing conditions for photography and uh, graphic arts, and ISO 12646, and there's some others associated with it which is very much about monitor display calibration for proofing and printing. Now, uh, these are very detailed, um, very, very detailed standards, recommendations. So we begin with one or the other. Now, for example, I, I, I take some pictures, maybe here in the studio, or I go for a walk down by the river and, you know, kangaroos are bouncing around and all sorts of beautiful things, are, crazy cockatoos are, you know, flying upside down, you know, as they tend to do. Yeah, and I take some pictures because I'm just, I love where I live and I'm enthralled by the environment uh, I find myself in. I come home. 
Now, I don't know what I want to do with those pictures, so straight away, I, um, you know, I'm working on a high-end graphics monitor, like an ASO color edge screen that can be hardware calibrated to precision on these standards. So I straight away start with ISO 3664, you know, a white point around 6,500 degrees Kelvin, a gamma curve of 2.2 where middle grey is basically in the middle of our scale, plus a little coefficient to uh, take into account the, the assumed room environment we're working in, the effect on what we see. Gamma 2.2, at the lower end of our brightness range, around 80 candelas, I can explain really quickly why, but I've got whole papers on this that ex and videos that explain it in more detail. So 6,500, gamma 2.2, 80 candelas, a black point of 0.4 candelas per metre squared. So I have a screen contrast ratio of about 200 to 1, not 1,500 to 1, you know, not 45 to 1, but 200 to 1, which for me is right in the middle of the, visually in the middle of the contrast range between glossy papers, uh, matte papers, glossy screens, and so on. So I start right in the middle of the range of conditions under which photos are seen, viewed, appreciated, thought about. ISO 3664. But then, Matt, one of those images, oh my God, this is better than I thought. This is, it really gets under my skin. So straight away, I then, and of course I'm a printmaker before anything else, so straight away I go, wow, and I change my screen calibration to an ISO 12646. So I'm now a 5,000 degrees or thereabouts, correlated colour temperature, gamma 2.2, 200 to 1 contrast ratio, you know, 80 candelas and so forth. And straight away I'm then looking at the image in my working environment yeah, as if it's more like what viewed under D50 simulated illumination the image is likely to look like, not as a monitor, but as a print. So ISO 12646, my screen is then no longer pretending to be a monitor, it's pretending to be something else, a simulation. But of course I then, because I'm working on a colour edge monitor for Mesa, where I can do these advanced calibrations, I then quickly hit the button and change it, or let's say to our our beautiful platine paper. So then contrast and, and uh, you know, tonal transitions and paper colour and dimensionality, you know, at least four of the 17 factors that affect soft proofing, uh, successful soft proofing, at least four of those I can see on my beautiful screen. So I then are looking at my image in terms of its warmer, cooler, you know, and not surface texture, not raking light, but in terms of how it is likely colorimetrically to appear as a print, I'm then proofing that on my screen. And unlike you know, soft proofing in Photoshop and, and the like, my whole screen is then soft proofing platine paper, for example, so I've, I can adapt to it if my viewing environment allows me. I can adapt to it where that's very hard to do in, you know, in the Photoshops of the world where only the image is changing and you're still adapted to the rest of the screen unless you zoom in and turn off the palettes and so on and so forth. What's so your um, approach or recommendation for brightness and room, uh, like the ambient okay. light? Um, the quick answer is if we start at 80 candelas for the peak whiteness and 0.4 for the black point to give us a 200 to 1 uh, contrast ratio on the screen, uh, 
that to me is a really smart place to start. Why? Because the conditions under which photographs as pictures are viewed, and uh, you know, this is what we worked out way before we even had ISO 3664 recommendations, the archival darkness of a museum where so much of my work is seen and, and exhibited, 50, 50 lux. And then here in my studio where mid-morning or mid-afternoon, it's always three to 4,000 lux. Um, in North America, you, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd have all this north light. Here it's south, it's south light, right, coming in. Yeah, soft, beautiful, enveloping light all through the day. So three, 4,000 lux at one end, 50 lux at the other end, Four to five hundred lux is right in the middle. Four to five hundred lux incident light reflecting off beautiful white paper like platine matches, yeah, 80 candelas on my screen. So straight away I have a correlation between peak brightness of my monitor, 80 candelas, and peak brightness of my printing paper. Yep, I have that correlation. All I have to then do is make sure that my surrounding lighting is dark enough, our ISO standards recommend, you know, around that 30, 32 lux. It's not pitch black because then simultaneous contrast kicks in and, you know, we see everything as being more contrasting and brighter than it is and it's not bright daylight like it is here where I do all my video production uh, where everything then looks darker and flatter than it really is, you know, simultaneous contrast in our brains, you know, we're con we've got auto exposure going full time in our brains. So, 80 candelas peak brightness, commensurate with four to 500 lux yeah, viewing illumination on our prints. Uh, it just makes total common sense. Now, I've articulated this in a lot of detail uh, in my lighting theory paper. So my lighting theory paper, uh, which, you know, I don't know, it's in its 20th iteration now, over 25 years, whatever it is, that's on our website under, under support notes printing, um, I articulate this and show all the comings and goings along with a whole lot of other okay. papers. So, but that's why. Now, why would we make our brightness greater than 80 candelas? Well, if you're not in an ideal working environment, remembering our brain adapts to the environment we're in. Oh, those clouds up there, that's the brightest thing in my field of vision. That is what white is today. And, oh, those... those those shadows under the fridge in the corner there, that's what is the darkest thing, so that's black today. You know, we're constantly auto-exposing this stuff, auto-white balancing and so on. So, you know, we have to put ourselves in a position yeah, where we have some chance of seeing what's on the screen. But if we're in a less than ideal environment, you know, it's too bright and I don't have curtains or I don't want to because the view is important to me. You know, there's other considerations. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I have a lot of friends who work in such circumstances that, according to our ISO recommend recommendations, are not ideal. So what does it make that makes a brighter room uh, maybe le more pleasant to work in for some, but less than ideal? Well, the ambient light, once, it, once you measure it in front of your monitor, and at 28 lux, 30 lux, you know, a sensitive uh, 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 spectrodensitometer can start to measure the effect of the ambient illumination on a black screen. So you begin, the ambient room light begins to add flare in your viewing geometry. You then end up with a room with 3,000 lux like it is here today. My blacks are much brighter 
Yeah, so my 80 candela white point is here, and, and then on my blacks are here at 0.4, but the flare in the room from the excessive room brightness and reflections raise that black point. So the contrast on my monitor decreases. So then to compensate, I need to go 120 candelas or 160 candelas to restore right. the original 200 to 1 or whatever the contrast ratio and, is. Does that and then you, yeah. Uh, yeah, then you go to print the image and all the blacks are just clipped. Yes. Well, there's a lot right. of reasons for that. Again, that's another whole 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 topic. But Right, but that's one of the culprits is yes. people are editing their images and far too bright of an environment. Les, why are my prints so dark? Because your monitor's <laughs> too bloody bright, yeah? Les, right, why exactly. are my prints so flat? Because your monitor's too bright, which makes it too contrasty. And a lot of screens right. we work on, like, like the little uh, camera monitor that I'm looking at now, I've got no control over that, even though it's, a, you know, it's an extraordinary uh, little monitor attached to, to my, my video camera. Uh, I've got, I don't have the control over that that I've got of my Azo Color Edge monitor here. So... So I've got to really caref be really careful on what I'm looking at there compared to what I'm seeing here. And therefore, I have to do all sorts of magic with that little uh, camera monitor so that it looks like what I need it to look like. So, you know, right. I've got, I've right. got, you know, I've got, a, you know, under that support notes website, I've got a, a number of papers that help. And I've also got those videos like the advanced soft proofing with ASO Color Edge monitors video, the advanced soft proofing. And I've got addendums on there for the latest uh, Color Navigator 7 systems and, you know, just demonstrating how and also how you do this if you don't have a specialised graphics monitor. You know, if you haven't yet been able to budget and save up for an advanced graphics monitor, you're, you're having to work on, well, I've got a beautiful uh, Retina MacBook Pro here in front of me. I mean, God, what a screen. But of course, you know, there's no relationship whatsoever uh, to, to, to a print. And of course, it's welded shut for all the good reasons of a laptop computer. I can't make it look anything like my prints, no matter what I do to it. And if I calibrate that screen, I'm just dumbing down the output of the video card, which is, oh my God, who thinks that is a good idea? Come on, I need every, every bit of bit depth I've got and every color metric nuance, please. But I don't have... So how do I do this? How did we do this, Matt, before we had Color Edge monitors, you know, in, in 2007? I mean, how did I do this before, say, Photoshop had color management in 1998? I mean, we were doing this way back when. And so there are ways of, no matter what you... Look, I've just put a new video up, you know, called um, Evaluating Files Before Printing which addresses this very question that came up in a recent workshop from a lovely chap in, Nor in Norway who, who was attending this, um, you know, this uh, Zoom workshop as I, as I do them these days. And a really, really, really wonderful and insightful question. And I thought, and I have these, you know, I have these little 21-step grayscales, you know, just where you divide you know, the tonal scale from black to white into 21 even steps. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you bring it up on your screen and I, you use LAB notation because it's device independent. It's unambiguous, unlike RGB or CMYK numbers, which only mean a particular colour when expressed through a particular gamut. So we use the universal nomenclature of, let's say, LAB notation, lightness values. And then I print them out. I mean, look, I've got them right beside me here. I never leave home without them. And I've got one printed on rag photographic, that beautiful soft matte paper. Yeah, and I've got one <laughs> printed on platine, of course, showing my prejudice here. And straight away, I can see, even in the worst 
less ideal environment, you know, gee, those shadows are measuring in my info palette in Capture One or Lightroom or Photoshop or whatever. Gee, they're around L star lightness. Oh, gee, they're 15 to 20. 15 to 20. Oh, God, they, they look fantastic on my overbright, overcontrasty, you know, radiating screen, but on my mm-hmm. beautiful, soft, compassionate, reflective, rag photographic print, it's not going to translate well, you know, so, so, so yeah. on and so forth. So um, eva- evaluating files before printing is the name of the little video. I put it up a couple of nights, no, nights ago in response to Col- uh, uh, my friend Colby in Norway in his uh, question during the last workshop crafting a digital print workshop about such things so that uh, we haven't got time to go into it anymore now I know but that will e- extend that conversation if you're interested in it um, it's on our yeah, little YouTube course. channel yep yeah we'll link to that too so uh, two more questions the first one is um, tell us a little bit about your education and production services I know oh, you've been yeah. kind of weaving that into the conversation but what, what do you want our audience to know in terms of that Ah. Uh, what a world we live in. You know, the workshops that I've done uh, for decades and decades outside of the university system, uh, yeah, for, for lots of reasons. Uh, when, since March 2020, when the pandemic really hit us here in Australia, big time. And, yeah, you guys got crushed. <laughs> yeah, we really did. And uh, in Melbourne Jeez. especially, you know, the lockdowns here were, you know, just yeah. out of control. And... Um, uh, but it was wonderful because I was no longer on planes every second day of the every second week. You know, it was just fantastic. And so we set up the broadcasting studio. So all our workshops and all my almost all my consultations have been online via Zoom ever since. And so now, like I mean, the crafting a digital print workshop uh, two weekends ago, sixty uh, percent of the people attending were overseas. Uh, yeah. Robert from the UK, Colby in, in Norway, Jeff from New Zealand and um, you know, friends from North Queensland, all attending in real time. So it is just, uh, but I've then got to balance time zones and differences like you and I. <laughs> right, yeah, that's true. Yeah, well, we've just gone off daylight saving here, so I was so relieved that, that, uh, that you wouldn't be any, up any later than you actually will be. But, um, but so, yeah, we, we offer ex- an extensive, again, if you go to the website, Les Walk Ling. Dot com, three L's, Les Walk Ling, not walking, walk length. You miss an L, as I like to say, you miss everything. And if you just, just go to the education column page, click on workshops, you'll, you'll see all the stuff that we do every um, outside of university, every fortnight throughout the, uh, the most of the year. I, I do a workshop on the weekends, you know, Saturdays and Sundays, or for your good self, it'll be Friday night and Saturday night. Um, Right. Uh, so with the, the six hours of the workshop plus all the other stuff is broken up over two, three-hour sessions to give lots of time for you know, contemplation, practice and whatnot. But it's what we've always done for a long time. So, yeah, look, uh, it's just remarkable that people from all over, the, all over now and they don't have to fly to Melbourne and book accommodation, you know, just to come to my studio to do this stuff. And, again, I, I'm not getting on planes as I used to, Matt. And, you know, as soon yeah, as nice. I get off <laughs> in another city, you know, with all my baggage to do a workshop, I'd go, oh, my God, should, I should have bought that. Or I should have bought, you know, just living in abject. And you'd have all your servers running, but I couldn't sort of reach into the compactus and pull out another spectrodensitometer if I needed it, you, you know, or being, pull out that lens. So now, 
almost within arm's reach, well, here and upstairs and over there, you know, I've got everything in all my research from 50 years. You know, everything is at our fingertips. It's unbelievable. And we do a lot of consulting. Um, a lot of it is for our major uh, our cultural and biological institutions here, you know, our cultural collections, our art galleries, archives, libraries, national libraries, state libraries, um, uh, national galleries, uh, museums and so forth. I do a lot of consulting into there, helping them with their digitising, you know, very selfish originally because my works are in these public collections, my works of art. Yeah, and yeah. I was pissed right. off basically 30 years ago or 28 years ago with how they were being reproduced, you know, in books and, <laughs> and then online. And so, you know, in my youthful arrogance, I, I kind of, you know, got involved. But, you know, I just love contributing to that debate about collections and the re-imaging of collections, not just their access but their reconsideration in terms of colonial structures and the stories that they've imposed and what else we can do with them. So these are also sites of displacement and intervention, you know, for, for me as an artist. So even though I'm going in Got there it. as a technical, you know, cultural consultant, I'm also in there as an artist seeing what I can do with it. Um, and and with, with areas of, our, of the world of art that you love, you know, I can just look at these pictures on your walls behind you. Um, you know, a lot of the conversation is also about our imaging of place and occupation and, and uh, engagement with things above and beyond just our own own ontology. So it's just extraordinary. Uh, but I also do a lot of consulting, more than even all the supervising inside universities I've done over all the years, with extraordinarily lovely people from all over the world where we catch up on a need-to-know basis or on a regular basis. I mean, every Friday morning I'm meeting with my dear friend Anne and for a couple of hours with all of her insane phase one, you know, incredible uh, high-end madness. And she's an incredible photographer. And I just love going on her expeditions with her virtually and, you know, so, uh, and all sorts of things. And also services. Um, we, we do a lot of stuff here. We, we do a lot of um, collaborative printing uh, since 1985, I've run this collaborative studio here to open up our facilities and our expertise to other artists, uh, you know, and working with extraordinary people who are really close, dear friends, Bill Henson and all manner of photographers, photographic artists here of the highest, highest order within our culture. Uh, but, but also, uh, and helping people print their exhibitions and imaging them and a lot of work um, is on at the National Gallery of Victoria at the moment in the Melbourne Now show with my dear, dear friend, uh, you know, Peter Clancy, the, the, the Associate Dean of Indigenous Studies at Monash University here, and all of her uh, First Nations uh, wonderings and wanderings and resurfacing of uh, the undercurrents of, of her culture, of her cultural history, and reinstating them and re-inhabiting museum spaces with such huge, huge, beautiful work. So we do a lot of this, but... The thing that I probably love the most, and thank you for asking, is the printer profiles that I make for other people. Now, I've spent, mm. was it, what is it now, 2023, I've spent 28 years writing lookup tables from an artist's point of view. And I, this is you know, going beyond ISOs, going beyond ICC. It's where I go, well, yeah, okay, this is how our compiling of the representation, the characterization of printing, let's say, ink paper, ink sets, ink control uh, printers and so on, of how we come to represent something else, how we turn 
a raster of pixels, of RGB triplets, into a sea of dots of ink of different colours, different sizes, different placements. You know, an extraordinary, extraordinary undertaking. A huge chunk of the last PhD I did was on such things. Now, I've spent, you know, nearly three decades writing lookup tables, which are the heart and soul of our printing transformations from RGB, let's say, to ink on paper, uh, from an artistic point of view. And we make all these profile variants from the same data sets. And, you know, it just started out of my own research interests and my complete and utter horror at the industrial codified efficiency productivity-based solutions that dominated the ICC world. Yeah, now, now, of course, they're totally doing what they're meant to be doing, but as an artist, they just fell way short of what I'd come to expect. And therefore, I just started mucking around with how do you write these transformations? And, of course, and of course you know, our perceptual tables are basically good luck, Les. You know, you're trying to do something that can't be done, print colours that feel right, that can't be printed accurately with a colorimetric transformation. So this has been a massive, fascinating practice of light research topic. So, and the beauty is that in most cases, I can make profiles for people's printing workflows, no matter where they live, yeah? as long as they can ship to us uh, you know, the, the, the data that we, that we need. So that's become a huge source of joy for me to be able to do and make such incredible material differences straight off the bat uh, for people's workflows. And, and I, I never tire of hearing of their admiration and joy at how, they, what they, how their prints then appear. Um, and awesome. so that's, a, that's awesome. something that I might, along the way, if needed, I might be able to do for some of your, your friends um, and participants, Brilliant. if needed, uh, because we do it for hundreds of people all, all over the world. So anyway, in, in, right. enough on that. Uh, back to you. Well, my, my last question is, uh, who do you recommend for the podcast? Who are some oh, yeah. people that, now, that we need to know about? Okay, now, uh, the little collective here, ND5, that I became involved in 12, 13 years ago, uh, you know Christian Fletcher from that and his incredible galleries and extraordinary landscape work. Uh, well, there's, we've got other people in that cohort. I mean, there's Joe Quayle from London, you know, composer, music composer, performer. Uh, there's Michael Fletcher, Christian's twin brother, who's an extraordinary cinematographer, does all the video filmmaking for us. But then there's also Tony Hewitt in Western Australia, He's just a legend in his own time, an extraordinary educator, extraordinary photographer, uh, a landscape uh, pre predominantly these days. His excursion right around the circumference of the main island here of Australia, you know, in, in the little Cessna uh, and the aerial photography. I mean, it's just incredible projects. He is phenomenal. And, of course, my dear, dear mate from Sydney, just 500 miles north of me here, uh, Peter Eastway, dear Peter Eastway, you know, publisher, accountant to the arts, um, uh, travel photographer, you, you know, you, you name it. Uh, all the photo tours he does to the Americas, uh, 
Antarctic, uh, Bhutan, uh, Europe and elsewhere. Yeah, he's a legend in his own right. Look, they're really good value for money. And if you even half enjoy talking to Christian, you'll love talking to Tony and Peter. But then there's also people in, in, in your country that I know incredibly well that I consult with on a regular basis and uh, have incredible um, time with. They're, pretty, they're in the world of contemporary art, though, rather than the world of applied or commercial you know, sort of landscape photography like Peter and Tony are. Um, but Adam Ketseff up in Boston, back up in Boston, I don't know if you know, extraordinary young man. No, don't know. Um, you know, he works in the world of contemporary art. He's not a landscape photographer as such, but his, his practice is, is embedded in the re-imaging of landscapes, both and oh, a whole myriad of things. Incredibly uh, informed, but also incredibly emotional work. Huge gallery, you know, museum-scale works that he produces of the highest order. He's become a very dear friend. He did uh, my 3D look creator workshop a year and a half or so ago and stayed up till, you know, 7 a.m. his time to do the workshop and talk for a couple of hours after the workshop. That impressed me (laughs) straight away, right? But boy, is he ever ever become a great friend and a great companion. I don't know. You you know, if you're interested in more of that academic, you know, artist, a scholar... Uh, perspective, um, someone who exhibits in major, major galleries around the world, especially, you know, West Coast, East Coast, uh, in your uh, United States, um, he could be someone as well. But certainly for a laugh a minute and incredible in, in being informative and engaging, my dear, dear mates, Tony Hewitt and Peter Eastway, I couldn't, could, I, I might be sorry for saying this, you might get back to me and say, why the hell did you recommend Bloody Eastway? But uh, he's a seriously, seriously good guy that I've got all the time in the world for. He's very different to me, yeah, of course, as Tony is also. But we get on like a house on sure. fire for reasons that, you know, only the gods know, understand. But I think you'd really enjoy a, a sit-down conversation with them. Um, and you'd probably get a, a lot more return than what you've got from me. So... It's probably no, no. best you, you lock them in. <laughs> okay. No, well, well, that's, this has been super fun, and I learned a lot, and um, I know that our listeners will have learned a lot as well. Well, that's a bonus. Uh, thank you. But, look, it's, thank you for the opportunity and how lovely to sit yeah, down and have a chat. And don't be a stranger. You know, if you've got any questions or anything whatsoever, or especially if you find typos or broken links in any of our whatevers, uh, offerings, okay. please let us know because it's a coll- as you understand, it's a collaborative enterprise here. I can't do what I do without your good selves and and vice versa. Hopefully, so um, yeah, we're in this together. Well, thank you to Les for joining me for this amazing conversation. I'm so happy that we could record the podcast, and you are truly an inspiration. We've included a heap of links in the show notes if anything that we discussed is of interest to you in more detail. Before we part ways, I wanted to remind you to hit pause and go to patreon.com forward slash f-stop and listen to support the show. Thanks again. Okay, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.